Okay. All right. Well, uh, if you got your notes tonight, you know that we are continuing our study of the doctrine of God. And tonight we're going to focus on that ever so strange and peculiar and controversial doctrine concerning God, which is the Trinity. Uh, we began a few weeks ago talking about the need for truth, for accuracy in the midst, you know, in the midst of all the the nonsense that's been going on in our world for the past uh, few months. Uh, it seems like truth and accuracy is has been uh, hard to find, but we know that uh, the scriptures reveal to us the very essence of truth and the very essence of what we need to know about ourselves, about the world, about God. And so we've been studying in that vein this far in 2021. And last week, we talked about God sort of in the big picture, the the main attributes and the main characteristics of God, beginning with him as creator and moving all the way down through the things that we talked about. But the word God itself is a very loaded term. I'm sure you're aware of that. We talked a little bit about that last week. And when it comes to defining that term, when it comes to defining who is God, uh, we come across this doctrine, which is um, really the best explanation uh, the, that we can make out of God. And we, and we say that with understanding that there's some things about God that we're just not capable of understanding, just things that are just beyond us. And uh, maybe, you know, in our glorified bodies after the Lord's return, maybe we'll be able to comprehend better then. But for now, we have to be satisfied just with that part of God that he has been willing to reveal. And this doctrine is very much a matter of revelation. This is, this is not how the world defines God. This is not how other religions, this is, uh, this is perhaps, uh, you know, one of the two or three most exclusive, most Christian doctrines uh, that we have. We don't, we don't have anything like it in any other religion or any other uh, philosophy of this world. This is a heavenly revelation, something which is never would have occurred to our hearts or minds, never would have, never would have been something that we would have been uh, even willing to believe if we did not have the very certain and the very sure revelation of God through his word. And so when we talk about the Trinity, we are talking about a revealed doctrine. We're talking about something that comes from God that would have otherwise, God would have been a complete mystery to us as he is to so many today in the world. All right, so we're going to, the first thing we want to understand, or the first thing we want to look at, is what the doctrine of the Trinity is not. Uh, there have been some variations and some uh, various corruptions of the doctrine, very compromises that were made to try to make the doctrine a little more palatable and um we want to make sure that we understand that these alterations of the doctrine are not uh, accurate. They're not true representations of what the doctrine is. And we want to expose them so we do not get caught uh, in, a, in something which leads us into error. And the first of these errors is the idea of adoptionism. Uh, this is the belief that Jesus was a man who became a God or who was elevated to Godhood, Godhood by his life of 
perfect submission and sacrifice. This idea that Jesus was so righteous, so holy, so committed to God that God raised him up, adopted him as his son to, uh, to put him in charge of all things. And this idea, while it, on the surface it may sound like it's honoring Jesus, is actually demeaning to Christ because it denies his eternal nature, his preexistence, his equality with the Father. This, this relegates Jesus to a mere human who happened to catch God's fancy and then got a promotion in, into the divine ranks. And this is not at all the way that uh, we should understand the Trinity or the Godhead in, in any way. Uh, do I have any comments or questions so far? Um, Bishop, is there? Yes. Um, it's the first time really hearing of this um, doctrine. Um, are there any popular movements now that, um, you know, believe in this um, adoptionism? Uh, there are some Christian uh, cults and some pseudo-Christian cults which uh, use this as a, as a, as a uh, sort of a foundation to elevate their own leaders into divine positions. So if you think of a, and I'm probably dating myself, but, you know, I'm an old man, so I go back to Jim Jones. I go back to David Koresh. I go back to some of the, you know, even even the, the Reverend Moon type uh, uh, cults that uh, would tell you that what God did for Jesus, God was, is also doing for whatever personality that, you know, that they've been uh, captured by. So... They, 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 it, it's not prominent in any mainline denominations. To answer your question, like, uh, you know, there's no mainline denomination that would teach this, but some of the Christian cults or pseudo-Christian cults use this idea. And uh, I know we don't talk a lot here about the cults, and, and I guess we've kind of reached a post-cult age of, in the society at the moment, but they're still out there. They're still active. Uh, they're just not as on the radar, I guess, as they used to be. Now, Anyone how, else? The, yeah, the point that you just made, made how, how, how does it differ or how does it equate to Sabellism? Uh, Sabellianism is a, is, is a form of Wow, you're you're really testing my uh, my early church fathers here. This is we're talking what about 200 A.D. Sabellius Sabellius was sort of a monarchist, I guess, a modalist. He was um, he was, I think, a proponent of the idea. We'll talk about modalism in a, in a moment, but he was a I think he was a proponent of the idea that um, God sort of took on different forms or different roles as suited him for particular occasions. So that it was you know, one God who sometimes acted like the Father and sometimes acted like the Son and sometimes acted like the Spirit. And, and that would become more, uh, more in, in tune with the modern, Say oneness Pentecostals, the United Pentecostals, people like that. That's that's not really an adoption point of view. Uh, and I, let me just say on a side note there, the Bible does talk about adoption. It does talk about you and me having been adopted into the family of God and having been elevated to sit with Christ and uh, to, to sit in heavenly places. And and so adoptionism is a biblical idea. I'm very grateful to have been adopted uh, and, and given uh, the privileges of a son of God. 
But the, the error here is extending that doctrine to Jesus. Jesus was not adopted. He was begotten. And there's a huge difference theologically, and there's a huge difference practically in our doctrine and in our worship between being begotten and being adopted. Anyone else? Isn't, 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 wasn't, wasn't Arius propagating something, some, something similar to that? Well, yeah, he's, he's the next one on my list here, Arian, Arianism, Arius. He was promoting an idea that's probably more today associated with other cults, like Mormons or Jehovah Witnesses, the idea that God, the, the eternal God, created another God called the Logos, or the Word. And that Logos, or Word, is the God that, created this world and and came in the as the person of Jesus Christ. So Arius is actually um, a polytheist more than a trinitarian. He he you know, he believed and taught and many like I say today if you, you know, if you ask a Jehovah witness is Jesus God their response will be well yes he is a god. And did you catch the difference there? If you ask them if yeah. he's God, they will say, yes, he is a God. Well, our response is, no, he is not a God. He is the God. So that's the difference between Arianism and uh, adoptionism. Is uh, In the one case, in adoptionism, Jesus begins as a man and becomes a God, and in Arius's case, the process is reversed. He begins as a god and becomes a man, which, of course, we also would reject. That is not a Trinitarian uh, doctrine. That's not part of the doctrine of the Trinity. Thank you. Absolutely. We, we, we. You know, you, I love when you guys test me on my. My early church uh, heresies. It's been, uh, you know, it's been a minute. I have to go back and read. I've got a, I've got a big book of the early church fathers, and I'm going to have to go back and reread that thing because uh, somebody's going to ask me, who, you know, about uh, Tertullian or Origen or something, and I'm going to be lost here in a minute. Um, Pelagius. Pala- oh yes, let's not forget Pelagius. He's uh, He's on our list too. We're going to get to him, uh, but uh, no, the uh, no. I'm, I, I listen. I don't think it's any secret to anybody on this call that I'm a I'm a church nerd, a church geek, a church brat. Um, I've, I've probably studied church history more than any reasonable person should, but you know, I'm just I'm a fascinated. I'm always fascinated by the story of how we how we got to be who we are, and um, certainly, you know, it's comforting to me to look into those early days of Christianity and see the the continuity of the faith, see the consistency of the teaching and the doctrine. Um, you know, this 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 faith of ours is truly, truly divine because uh, for any any movement to last for you know thousands and thousands of years and still be faithful to its core doctrines and its core beliefs is is a miracle it's a it's a proof of the divine work of the holy spirit in the church a mention was made earlier of Sibelius and and that leads us into what we're, I'm calling modalism uh, it's also sometimes called Sibelianism. It's also sometimes called Monarchianism. Uh, it's all basically the same idea with minor variations. Uh, and as I said, the, the main proponents of it today are the Oneness Pentecostals. I don't know who knows really the story of where the Oneness Pentecostals came from. Uh, but about... <sighs> In the very earliest days of the Pentecostal movement, so we're talking, what, Azusa Street was 1906. 
So we're probably talking somewhere in the teens, maybe 1914, 1915, as the Pentecostal movement was really beginning to, uh, to spread. A, a dispute arose between some of the early teachers and ministers on how to baptize new converts. Some preferred to preserve the traditional baptismal formula of in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit. A small group, small sect, uh, preferred to use the Acts formula of Acts chapter 2 of baptizing in the name of Jesus. Now, if this was all that was at stake here, then this would have been a very minor thing because in terms of salvation, it doesn't truly make a difference. Uh, You are not saved by water baptism. You're saved by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. So if this had just been allowed to go its way as a minor disagreement among otherwise like-minded Believers, it would merely be a footnote. However, as it is so often in the church, what starts out as a minor disagreement eventually finds its way into a major theological uh, divide and split. And to defend their teaching of baptizing in the name of Jesus rather than the name of the Father Son and Holy Spirit, these early Pentecostals revived Sibelius and revived the modalist interpretation of the Trinity, claiming that Jesus is the name of the Father, Jesus is the name of the Son, and Jesus is the name of the Spirit, that there was simply one Lord who would manifest in different forms, in different uh, times. And uh, this idea, which was rejected, you know, when Sibelius brought it up, of course, was rejected again when these oneness Pentecostals brought it up. And that's what led to the split. And that's why today you will see, uh, uh, or we still have, you know, that division within the Pentecostal community. The UPC churches uh, and some of the apostolic churches maintain this Jesus-only interpretation, but the rest of the Pentecostals and the rest of the mainline Christian churches have rejected it. And basically, the main problem with it, and again, if this had been what the Bible taught, if any of these doctrines were what the Bible actually taught, then we'd be obligated to believe them, whether we like them or not. But the the clear teaching of the scriptures is that there is a personal distinction between the Father and Son and Spirit, that they cannot be the same person. And if they are the same person, then many, many passages in the Bible are outright deceptions, if not fraudulent. And so, of course, we have to we have to reject this idea. Uh, but, but, any thoughts on modalism? As as, uh, as the Jesus only, how do they interpret what happened at Jesus's baptism, and even on the Mount of Transfiguration? How how do they reconcile that? Well, I, I'm not an expert on. Uh, oneness theology, but in my conversations, me now. <laughs> in my conversations, and only in my conversations, and I've talked to a number of oneness people over the years, and and I want to say here before I go on, uh, I, I've had genuine fellowship with oneness believers. I, I, I have, I have, you know. I have a conviction that while they're they're misled and while they they misunderstand, uh, I do believe their faith in Christ is sincere, and I don't have, uh, you know, I, I don't put them, I guess, categorically in the in the in the company of heretics like Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons and 
that group. You know, I, I, I make a distinction. Not, not everybody does, but I do. Um, you know, to me, they're more like Adventist than they are like, uh, like the Mormons. But the expression they give to me is that because he is God, he can be in more than one place at one time. So he could be the Father in heaven speaking to the Son on earth and also taking the form of the dove. Obviously, we look at that explanation and we shake our heads and we say, that, that is clearly not what's happening there. But if, if this doctrine helps us at all, it helps us to understand that you can't make up your mind what you want to be true and then go to the Scriptures and try to find proof of it. You have to let the Scriptures teach you what is true. And that's, that's simply what, that's, that's what happened with the oneness, the Jesus onlys. They had made up their mind about one thing, which was water baptism in the name of Jesus. And to defend that position, they had to invent or revive uh, a very uh, silly way of explaining the, tr the Trinity and that's the danger. Don't make up your mind what you believe. Read the scriptures and let them teach you what to believe, and you'll be okay. All right, and then, of course, there's some very minor cults and minor, uh, more outside of Christianity than inside of Christianity, who teach a sort of tritheism. The idea that the Son, the Father, the Spirit are three different gods who work together in harmony and concert and, and uh, to carry out uh, their will. And that, that we can just reject outright because that's just polytheism in a different form. And we wouldn't, we wouldn't countenance that in any Christian pulpit. All right, so that's what the Trinity is not. All right, so having figured out what the, the Trinity is not, the next obvious question is, well, what is the doctrine of the Trinity? What does the doctrine of the Trinity affirm? And so let me begin by saying first and foremost that Trinitarians, the doctrine of the Trinity, affirms monotheism. Monotheism. We are monotheists. We believe that there is only one God. And that there is only one God is the clear teaching of the Scriptures. God is one. The unity of God is absolute. Uh, let me pause here and let me request... Uh, if you're on the line tonight and want to speak, uh, we please want you to do that. But if you're not speaking, we're going to ask you to mute your phone so that the background noise uh, is not distracting others listening on the call. So if you could do that, that'd be very much appreciated. And when you want to speak, just unmute your phone and please feel free to participate. All right, so we are monotheist. We believe that there is only one God, and he is God all by himself. However, within that concept of the unity of God, we believe that the scriptural concept of unity and the scriptural, scriptural concept of one is often used to reference a unity of persons. And we see evidence of that in a number of scriptures. Genesis chapter 2 tells us that a man and a woman shall become one flesh. Genesis chapter 11 tells us that the people were one. First Kings chapter 22 tells us that the prophets of the Lord were one. Jesus claimed in John chapter 17 that he and the Father were one, and so on and so forth. There are a number of places in the Bible 
or the concept of one does not mean singular, but rather it means a unity of two or more persons in that unity. All right. The doctrine of the Trinity affirms that the scriptural word for God, the most common scriptural word for God in the Old Testament is the word Elohim or Elohim. This word itself is a plural word. It is a plurality and it indicates a plurality of persons. And depending on context, it uses the personal pronouns us uh, as it does in Genesis chapter 1 where God says let us make man in our image and again in Genesis 11 let us go down and Isaiah 6 that beautiful uh, vision that Isaiah has of the throne the question is asked by God who will go for us so in each of those circumstances and others, the word for God himself is suggestive of a plurality of persons involved. All right. The scriptures also record interactions and conversations between members of the Godhead. Uh, there are some very famous, uh, uh, we, I think we read one Sunday, Psalms chapter 2, where uh, the quotation is given, the Lord said unto my Lord, or the Lord has said unto me, you are my son in another place. This inter-conversation between the members of the Godhead is um, I think very indicative of a plurality of personalities. It can, you know, I, I understand, and listen, I'm not one to criticize because I probably talk to myself more than I talk to other people if I put all the words together that I speak in a day. But there would really be no value to God speaking to himself in a third person like that. It would not, it would only confuse us if it was not the case that he was speaking to another member of the Godhead. And there are many places in the Bible where the scriptures record a threefold expression in reference to God. Indeed, that verse that we looked at before in Deuteronomy chapter 6, be, Hear you, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. You see that threefold repetition of the name of God, Jehovah, along with the name Elohim in the context there. Numbers chapter uh, Numbers chapter 6, the blessing that is given there is a good example of this threefold uh, repetition of the name of God. It says in, Romans, in Numbers chapter 6, Verse 24, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So they shall put my name on the children of Israel and I will bless them. I think we all know the story in Isaiah where the angelic host surround the throne in Isaiah chapter 6 and cry holy, holy, holy three times holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty there are uh, a number of other places in the Bible and in each of these that repetition of a divine name or a divine attribute indicates a shared quality or a shared action that is being referenced. It would be redundant, obviously, if it was not in reference to more than one person. And of course, the scriptures make direct reference to three different persons as God. 
The Father is called God in many places. John chapter 6, 27 is one of them. The Son is called God in John chapter 1 in Hebrews chapter 1. The Holy Spirit is called God in Acts chapter 5, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and chapter 6. This this would be, if, if this was not, if the Trinity was not an accurate depiction of the Godhead, then this would be a very serious matter to call something or someone God who is not God is a highest form of blasphemy. This would be idolatry. This would be something that would be totally uh, anathema to any true believer in God, to call Jesus God, to call the Holy Spirit um, offense. And we we Trinitarians, we would be guilty of a great blasphemy if we continue to insist on calling Jesus God if he is in fact not God. I, I just want us to understand the seriousness. I, I know some people will tell you, you know what, it doesn't matter. Whatever you believe about God, it's not important. Just believe I, I can't disagree any more strongly. Imagine the insult that we are giving. Imagine the 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 absolute uh, disgrace that we are giving if we've spent two thousand years calling a man God who was not divine. This would, be, this would be the grossest of errors, the most heretical of heresies. You know, we come to this doctrine of the Trinity with, with, with fear and trembling. We come to it on our knees. Um, you know, we could play it safe and just say, well, you know, we don't really know if Jesus or the Holy Spirit is this or is that. We're just going to play it safe and we're just going to worship the Father and some people, you know, have, have gone down that path, but for us, you know, we're on that knife blade, we're on that edge. To call Jesus God if he's not God is blasphemy. To not call him God if he is God is to deny him his what is his by right and his by worth. And so, you know, we we have to be sure about this. We have to take one side of this or the other. And, um, you know, I'm, I am convinced not only by the teaching of scriptures, not only by the, the, the early church theologians, but by my own personal experience that Jesus is Lord. He is part of the divine Godhead, the divine Trinity. And I have, I have no reservations about worshiping him, about, about uh, magnifying and glorifying his name. Uh, but it is, it is an act of blasphemy if we're wrong. And, and so we do have to take it to a, a, a very serious place. All right. The, uh, the scriptures group the three persons in, together in a way that indicates a unique an equal relationship. So just look at how many times in the New Testament the name of the Father. We talked about that. We talked about baptism earlier, right? Matthew chapter 28. Uh, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. There's no reason to, to group those three names together in that context other than to indicate an equality and of recognition and an equality of, of status for each of those persons. You know, Paul begins his letter to the Romans with, um, you know, he's, he's been separated to the gospel of God, which he promised to his prophets, 
concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David and declared to be the son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness. Again, he, he puts all three persons as being essential to the gospel, essential to the messages, to the message of Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus' death and resurrection have no meaning in Paul's mind unless we understand them in their relationship to the Father and to the Holy Spirit. And you know, there's a number of other places, and 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 I've given you a list of some of the scriptures there in your notes to to kind of look up for yourself. But you know, Romans fifteen thirteen. Now I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ, through the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in prayers to God for me. So here in the matter of prayer, Paul makes, it, uh, a, makes a point of saying that in our prayers we have to involve not just the Father, but the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. You know, being Pentecostals, we're all familiar, I think, with 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and there it says that there are diversities of gifts with the same Spirit. There are diversities of uh, ministries, but the same Lord. There are diversities of activities, but the same God works all in all. Now, there's no reason to mention the Spirit, the Lord, and God in relation to spiritual gifts unless all three are active and empowering those gifts. Um, you know, it would have just, you know, we call it, it would have just, you know, we've kind of used the shorthand for for many years. We call them the gifts of the Spirit. But truly here, Paul tells the Corinthians that the Lord and the Spirit and God are all active in manifesting these gifts through the church. You know, and he tells the Corinthians again at the end of 2 Corinthians, that uh, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Here he's, he's saying that you know the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all a part of uh, uh, blessing and keeping and sanctifying the church. It's not just the church of Jesus, um, but it's, it's the church of the Lord Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit. And, and there's there's many other examples, and I, I think you can you can find them on your own. But this continuous pattern, particularly in the New Testament, of grouping these three individuals together over and over and over around the essential matters of our faith: baptism, conversion, the gospel, the church, the temple of the Holy Spirit. Uh, uh, the unity of the body in Ephesians and, and, and the sanctity of the body in 1 Peter. Um, if all three are not needed or all three are not necessary or, or all three are not part of it, then why put them together? Why make it so that we would understand that the entire Trinity is involved in every aspect of our walk and our service and our faith and our worship uh, in this world as the church. All right, so uh, I think it was, uh, maybe it was Reverend Foga earlier that mentioned the baptism scene. Uh, that's one example. Uh, several places in the scriptures where all three persons are said to be present and active and participating at the same time in the same place. So let me, you know, we, we, we take you back to that scene there at the Jordan River. You know John the Baptist is there and Jesus comes and you have that interaction between those two where uh, Jesus asks John to baptize him. John initially refuses and Jesus says it's to fulfill all righteousness and John baptizes him. And as he's baptizing him, you have Jesus himself in the river, physically present, spiritually present, materially present. You have a, a vision or a, or a representation of the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove coming down from heaven and resting upon Jesus. 
And then you have the voice of God, the voice of the Father speaking from heaven, saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now, this is either, in my mind, if the Trinity is not uh, true, this is a very gross deception. Uh, three persons present uh, and identify, go out of their way. The, the gospel writers go out of their way to identify all three persons if there are not, in fact, three persons present to define the doctrine of the Trinity so that we understand what it is when we are saying that we believe in this doctrine. Uh, there are three statements that I think we need to, to commit to our hearts and minds. The first is that the doctrine of the Trinity affirms that there is one God who eternally exists in three persons, those persons being the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, the term the Son there, you may, in some creeds or some uh, recitations of that, you may see some substitute the Word based on the the wording of First John chapter five verse seven. There, John says there are three that give testimony in heaven: the Father, the Word, and the Spirit. However, John tells us in John chapter one that the Word is identical with the Son. The Logos and the Son are the same person. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So. Uh, there's not really any need to get hung up on whether it's proper to call the second person of the Trinity the Son or the Word or the Logos. Uh, any of those designations, I think, is acceptable. The second is that the one God is a tri-unity, wherein the Godhead consists of three consubstantial persons. Consubstantial means of the same substance, of what they are. These persons are united in essence and in nature, but they're distinct in personality and position and will. What they are is the same. Who they are is different. And this is, this is a tricky one. And again, we're only going on the basis of what we can discern, what has been revealed through the Scriptures. Uh, there's, no, um, there's no division in terms of substance, of, you know, to, to use an a expression that doesn't really apply. They're all made of the same stuff. They have the same nature. They have the same essence. They are all equal in their substance. Where they differ is in personality and position and will. The Son subordinates His will to the Father. We see that in the Garden of Gethsemane. The Holy Spirit carries out the will of the Father and the Son. The Father initiates the Son embodies, the Spirit empowers. They perform different functions. They have different roles, but they are of the same substance. All right. And then the, the final statement is the, that all of the qualities of the Godhead, so those things we talked about last week, eternity, omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence, immutability, transcendence, eminence, sovereignty, holiness, love, all of these divine qualities are fully present and active in each person of the Trinity. So all three persons are omnipotent in themselves, are omniscient in themselves, 
are immutable in themselves. Uh, the full uh, context of divinity is fully present in each of the persons. How this works together and how they work together is still a bit of a minute of a mystery. Do I have a comment or a question here? Pastor, is it wrong to yes. say that it is the son who died and not the father? Died on the cross is it, and not the father. Is it, is it wrong to say that the son died and not the father? The is that son who died and not the father. Yes, it is the son who died. The father did not die. The spirit did not die. Okay. The son set aside some of his divine privilege. Let me be careful here because I know you're setting a trap and I want to make sure I don't trip it. Um, the response by some is, well, the, the, the divine part of Jesus could not have died, that it was impossible for God to die. And I, I'm going to answer this in a very circumspect way. The Bible teaches us without reservation that the Son, the Word, the Logos was fully present in the person of Jesus Christ. To argue that the divine Logos did not perish would be to suggest that at the moment of his death, the divine part of Christ abandoned the human part or separated from the human part. I don't know that we can make that argument. If we can make the argument that the divine and the human were somehow separated in Christ at the moment of his death, then we open the door that those two parts of Christ could be separated in other ways. That opens the door to adoptionism. That opens the door to uh, Arianism. That, we have to keep that door closed. Uh, the person of the Son did die with Christ in experienced death, experienced the fullness of death. And what will help us here is understanding, is, is, is moving past our very limited understanding of what death actually is. It would be impossible for us to testify that Christ suffered in all ways as we suffer if we exempt him from death. And so in some way that's a mystery, in some way that is not clearly defined scripturally, in some way that perhaps we won't even understand even when we get into glory, somehow the divine essence and nature of Christ was able to experience the suffering of death because in doing so, it was able to conquer death. If Christ went into death as a mere man, abandoned by his divine nature, then death would have won. But because of that divine nature, because God was able to confirm him as the Son of God, and he'd be raised. You know, go back to that portion there in Romans chapter 1, where it talks about how the resurrection is the proof that he's the Son of God, is the proof that he's divine. Um, so we can argue, we can say, that in some way that we don't fully understand, the Son of God died. Just as we can argue and do so that in some way we don't fully understand that was resurrected beyond death and has ascended into the eternal realm. We don't, we don't even understand that concept of if we put this in reverse and we talked about, uh, you know, instead of talking about how the divine was able to die, how is the human part of Christ now able to fully participate in the Godhead, in the Trinity? 
So it's a deep mystery, brother, and probably deserving of far more time than we can give it right now. But yes, the son died, not the father, not the spirit, the son. As much as it moves me that the man Christ Jesus died for me, I am so blown away by the thought of my Lord and my God dying for me. That is something just beyond beyond comprehension. And I, I really don't want to confuse anybody on this. This is a much deeper conversation. And, and truly, if it, if it troubles you, just leave it alone. Leave it wherever you need to leave it. Just know that he died and he rose again. And, and, and you are fine with that. But for those of you that like to pull the deeper threads of theology, something about the Son of God experiencing even the evil of death so that all might be reconciled, death might be reconciled, all the grave, all of it, descending uh, into the lower parts of the earth so that he could, so that he could reconcile it all is is just too marvelous, too wonderful, too too mind-blowing for for the limitations of my own uh, human understanding. That is the doctrine of the Trinity. <laughs> uh, I hope I didn't leave you more confused you were than you were when you came in. Uh, I hope we were able to convey at least some of the fundamentals of why we believe this. And that's really... That's really the intent of this Bible study is to help you understand why we believe the things that we believe. And, and uh, I certainly don't pretend to have every answer to every possible question, um, particularly concerning this doctrine. But uh, I believe it. I preach it. I teach it. And I believe as far as we can understand the nature of God, this is the best understanding we can have of who he is. All right, class, we'll talk with you again next Wednesday night, 745. God bless you and keep you. And, uh, and if he comes before then, let's all meet together at the throne. Have a good night. This has been a production of the Lighthouse Church of God. Thank you for listening. We hope you have been blessed. You are welcome to join us for service every Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information or to support our ministry, visit our website at www.lhcogfl.org. Or if you're in the Broward County area, we would love for you to visit our church located at 1890 Southwest 31st Avenue, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, 33312. God bless you. Until next time, this is the Lighthouse Church of God, lighting the way through the storms of life.